Well, good evening, and thank you for your singing this evening. Those are uh, wonderful hymns and songs reminding us of the great hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Jonah. We are going to really get into the main narrative tonight in the book of Jonah. As you're turning there, uh, given the uh, news that we received just this afternoon of Steve Vogler's passing, I just wanted to take just a moment and uh, pray for Jean, pray for her family, as well as they'll be making some plans. And a lot of the plans have been made, but uh, you know, uh, through the course of praying, uh, that some of those plans are uh, going to be just challenging, as it were. And so just be in prayer for the Vogler family. I want to do that right now, and then we'll get into our study tonight. And we'll pray for our study as well as we get started. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are looking forward to our study in Jonah tonight. And we're thankful for the mercy that you demonstrated to this reluctant prophet, this rebellious prophet. Reminds us of the mercy that has been demonstrated to Steve as well. Lord, we praise you for the saving grace that you have given to him. We pray that even though there was a difficult process in getting him to that point where he would finally surrender to the grace that was demonstrated to him, we praise you for salvation. Lord, we praise you that tonight he's rejoicing, and rejoicing beyond anything that he could have imagined in this life. Lord, we do also recognize that we still have a responsibility to be lifting up Jean and her family this evening, and so we just praise you for the opportunity we as a church have to minister to her. She has ministered so faithfully to Steve's every needs over the last several years, and we're grateful for the example and the testimony that she has provided to us. And now as she recovers and uh, spends the next uh, few days uh, processing what has transpired, we pray that you would give her strength and endurance as well, that we would come alongside her and encourage and strengthen her every need, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, uh, we praise you for this precious saint who has been such a positive and uh, impactful example of your mercy we praise you for her, we thank you for her, and we now pray that you'd give us wisdom to know how to minister to her as well. Lord, we praise you because even just a few weeks ago, this would not have been the type of prayers we would have been praying in this moment. Now we celebrate and praise because of the work that Christ has done in Steve's life. And so we praise you and thank you for that. Tonight we pray that you'd give us great wisdom as we study this book. We have the danger or the risk of seeing the narrative and just allowing it to slip through as if it were a Sunday school lesson for children. But tonight I pray that we would dig deeply into the text that is before us, that your name would be glorified, that you alone would be exalted in everything that is said and done as we spend time here, as Jonah is being cast into the sea tonight in the book of Jonah and the study that is before us. Give us discerning hearts to know how we should learn from the lessons, both of the pagan sailors and of the reluctant prophet, that your name would be glorified there as well. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so we are going to move into uh, really what is the, the heart of the book of Jonah in the sense of the narrative, the first narrative. There's kind of a few scenes. If you were to think of Jonah as being played out on stage, there'd be a few scenes that open up. And this is the first major scene. Uh, some time ago, just a few years ago, a man decided to attend a Cincinnati Reds game, 
even though uh, uh, he attended with his girlfriend, even though he knew that he was wanted by the law. And so he thought, well, I've, no one knows where I'm at. I've been running for some time. And so it kind of reminds you of one of those, uh, you remember that TV show years ago, America's Dumbest Criminals? Uh, this is kind of one of those guys. Uh, so he goes to a Cincinnati Reds game. Uh, it gets a little more complicated than that. He'd been on the run for a number of years. He's broken parole. And he is additionally uh, wanted on some failed appearances in court over drug-related problems. And so this guy attends a Cincinnati Reds game. During the game, the kiss cam focuses on he and his girlfriend, and he reaches over and gives her a kiss, and uh, the picture goes up onto the big screen, 30,000 people in attendance, including his parole officer. By the end of the game, the man was in handcuffs. Last week, we arrived at the port of Joppa, as Jonah enlists the service of a sailing vessel to take him from Joppa as far away from Nineveh as possible all the way to Tarsus, which is on the coast of Spain. He ran, believing that God would let him run, believing he wouldn't suffer the consequences of disobedience and rebellion. To this point, we could summarize what has happened in the book of Jonah in one brief phrase. God said go, and Jonah said no. Uh, The three verses that we have studied to this point are summarized just that briefly. God says go, Jonah says no. This evening as we dig in, we're going to begin to see the irony of the first revival in the book of Jonah. Jonah is about to be a a runaway prophet, a rebellious prophet, and in the process, he's still going to see revival break out. And that revival is going to take place on the decks of a ship that has been tossed by the winds. We're going to see that in just a moment, but we're going to get through the process first as we recognize that Jonah sleeps in verses 4 through 6, and so we dig right in. The verse verse 4 says this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah sleeps. And there's an interesting word play immediately as we recognize that the wind even obeys God. Let's go back to verse 3. In verse 3, the scripture says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. That is where we left off last week uh, in the port of Joppa as Jonah has entered into the ship. He has set sail out into the Mediterranean, and all seems good. Jonah won't obey God, but the wind does. It's the first little bit of irony. The prophet of God won't obey God, but the wind does. Verse 4 starts with vivid horror, actually. We see it in English, and we don't recognize the vivid horror that is actually displayed in these first few words of verse 4. The calm Mediterranean Sea is transformed into a raging torrent by the wind that God sent. And this first phrase could be translated, the Lord picked up a great wind and hurled it at the sea. That's literally what this first phrase means. This isn't a little bit of wave action, 
little bit of a uh, little bit of wind. This is a torrent that has been sent, that has been cast by the Lord onto the sea. The storm was such that the ship carrying Jonah was about to be destroyed. So this wasn't some mild tempest that had come up. Jonah had boarded the ship, having thrown his resignation at God in disobedience. You understand we studied those over the last couple of weeks. He's thrown his resignation at God. He's done. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He's not going to obey. But now the wind is obeying. And even though Jonah is on board the ship, we're going to see the mercy of God demonstrated to him. Immediately following Jonah's disobedience, the book points to the obedience of the wind. The wind was obedient. Jonah was not. And as we begin to unwrap what this looks like, we recognize that this is a devastating effect to some salty sailors because even the pagans pray. Verse 5, the scripture says this, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The word translated for mariners or sailors in some of your translations comes from the Hebrew word that means salt. And we even use this today, the old salt. When you talk about an old salt, you're talking about a sailor who's been on the waves of the ocean, and they've had some experience they're not, they're not the rookies on the platform. They're the experienced sailors. And that is the word that is used here in the book of Jonah. These are experienced sailors. They've sailed the seas for some time. They're experienced in every way. They're hardened, not easily frightened, but this was no nor- normal storm, no ordinary storm. There's several elements that we understand in Jonah's quick succession of words here. He's saying, that this storm was cast by the Lord. There was an immediacy to the storm. You couldn't see it building on the horizon and then working its way to you. You didn't see a fog bank coming. Suddenly, the violence of the wind had surrounded them. The ship was about to sink, and they began to cry out to their gods, little g gods in your Bible, and it's rightly so. It's little g gods. These are pagans. They're, they're praying anything to anything and everything that they could think of to... Uh, release them from this terrible storm. And not only are they doing that, but interspersed between their prayers, sailors are out throwing stuff overboard. And they're taking turns praying and throwing stuff overboard to make the ship as light as possible so that it wouldn't uh, become slogged with the water and sink. They pray to their God and they try to cover all their bases so that if there is one of their gods that sent this against them, that he would listen, they would respond and would relent from the most certain devastation to happen, the destruction that is to come. So we see that out of the pagans, but notice Jonah. Notice Jonah. The end of verse 5, the scripture says this, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, your, or perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We move from the window obeying God to the pagans beginning to understand that this is some divine work, but we have Jonah's refusal. Jonah is down in the depths of the ship and he's sleeping. You say, well, what kind of storm could that have been if Jonah's asleep down in the hole of the ship? How, how could he be sleeping in the midst of such a devastating storm? 
It's fascinating to me that while he's down there, this word for sleep is not a word that you would normally associate with sleep. Jonah's not down there taking a light nap. The word is actually snoring. And that, in fact, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is translated as snoring. Jonah is snoring downstairs in the hold of the ship. The captain probably finds him most likely looking for something to throw overboard, and he hears snoring from the corner. And he goes over there and finds Jonah snoring away. Jonah's laying down in the depths of the ship, snoring, while the pagans are up above praying. The prophet was sleeping. He was totally disconnected, disassociated. The prayers on the deck were intermingled with the sounds of cargo being hurled overboard, but the snores downstairs overtook the tossing to and fro. Jonah heard none of it. He was asleep. Jonah had checked out and was literally snoring through a once-in-history kind of storm. A once-in-history, never again. Once in history, he was snoring through it. The captain of the ship orders Jonah awake, and he orders him to call out to his God. It's fascinating to me as we pull out and we think of some of the tragedies that happen in our day and age. Recently, we had all the tragedies as spring began to, uh, well, our first of many springs began to spring out this year, uh, and winter keeps continuing to overtake it, it seems like, but of the first of many springs, there was some really warm weather down in the south, uh, south, southern portion of our country, and these huge tornadoes wiping out entire communities. It's interesting to me that in those uh, tragedies, in the face of tragedies, there's an interesting phenomenon that takes place among pagan people. They all pray. I remember when 9-11, this, I was in college and the World Trade Center's are hit, center buildings are hit, and I remember watching the first one hit on replay as the second one, they cut out, the news cuts out from the first damage, and they show a live footage of another plane coming in and striking the second tower. And I remember a nation on its knees in prayer. Many, not knowing Christ at all, but pagans praying when faced with natural disasters or man-made disasters, pagans can quickly become prayer warriors. And that's what's happening on the top of the ship. On the deck of the ship, you have pagan prayer warriors. When Jonah woke up and stood on the floor of the swaying ship, he knew the danger that they were in. He understood, though, who was behind the wind. We're going to see a character in Jonah start to build, and you see a hardness here. And I mentioned last week, and I want to mention and give the same caution again to us this week, let's not be too harsh on Jonah. Other prophets of, jo of Jonah's time, just before Jonah, fled as well. We talked about Elijah running uh, from Jezebel. So his, his mentor's mentor uh, fled. So let's not be too harsh on Jonah. We understand where he's at. We understand though his disobedience and we're going to learn from it when Jonah woke up he knew who was behind the wind God is always ahead of us behind us above us beside us beneath us wherever we run he is already there and he does not accept resignations and so Jonah throwing his resignation at God was not going to be accepted Jonah was still going to do the work that God had called him to do 
Jonah is, though at this point, the only man on the ship who knows the true and living God. But he's silent. He doesn't say a word. The pagan captain says, Jonah, call out to your God. And Jonah makes no recorded response. Jonah doesn't cry out for help. He doesn't add some sort of flair or drama. The captain adds, perhaps the God will give, you, give a thought to us that we may not perish. Consider the words uttered out of a pagan captain and how they should have cut Jonah. Think of what he just said. Pagans will often hold believers to a higher standard than the believer will hold themselves to. This pagan captain is holding Jonah to a higher standard than Jonah is holding himself to. There's a lot of reasons I think we're going to see in just a moment, but we should not miss the irony. Our title is The Irony of the First Revival. There's a number of ironic situations that happen as we read through these few verses tonight. But the first significant irony is the pagan sailor delivered words that were the very things Jonah did not want God to give to the Ninevites. He did not want, Jonah did not want God to deliver the Ninevites. And now the pagan captain is saying, cry out to your God that he may show us mercy. Jonah doesn't want the pagan Ninevites to be shown mercy, but now he has the opportunity to demonstrate the mercy of God right here, to pray out to God, to call out to God, but he's silent. He's silent. Now in the middle of the storm that threatened the sheep to sink the ship, he was being asked to pray that God would show mercy, but Jonah does not pray. Jonah does not pray. Notice Jonah's commitment. We're going to see this solidified all the more. Verse 7, as we continue on, we're going to read verses 7 through 10 and come back and work through them. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah's commitment becomes solidified as we see his answers, as the sailors seek answers from him. So Jonah's been called out to pray. The pagan captain has said, Jonah, pray that your God may show us mercy, that if it's your God who's upset, fine, just call out to him and see if he'll show us some mercy to spare us. We see a truly pagan answer there, right? We see this in our world today. It takes on a bit of different look today. But we see where, call out to whoever your God is and, and see if he'll spare us or see if she'll spare us. That is the cry that we hear in our world today, whether you use God or you use intellect or you use ideologies or uh, preferences, orientations, or whatever it is that you believe in. We see that same thing happen today in the same call out today. But these sailors are seeking answers from Jonah. The prayer meeting hadn't had its impact. 
So the sailors are all gathered together and they do something that they're probably more familiar with. They cast lots. There's really three kinds of lots that are cast. There's a die. There's a number of dice that are uh, used and they shake the die together and they're numbered or they've got some a symbol. And if you get the one with the specific symbol, then the die or the lot cast to you. That was one form. The other is a, a number of sticks and some, you know, kind of the, the choose the straw, pick the straw out. That was similar to a casting of lots as well. And if you got the long straw, guess what? It fell to you. The other, there was a third type and it was more of a precious stones and one precious stone of the same size as the other stones and they would shake that up and, and then when uh, the die where the stone was dropped, whatever stone dropped for your place, that was your stone and if you got the precious stone or the colored stone, then the die fell to you. So one of the three were the casting of lots and this was in some sort of way a divination of trying to understand what the gods, little g gods, were trying to say to humanity. When these sailors cast lots, the long stick or the numbered die or the colored stone fell to the winner, Jonah. Jonah, you are the problem. Can you tell us what is going on? Notice their questions. In, in verse 7, it says, So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah at the very end of 7. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you from? The prayer meeting hasn't worked, and now the casting of lots is pointed specifically to Jonah. As soon as the lots are cast, Jonah is bombarded with questions. Jonah, what's your problem? Why are you here? What do you do? The first question after the initial statement, the first initial statement is this, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So, Jonah, what's going on is the question. And then the next question, put yourself on the ship. You don't believe in the one true God. A storm has suddenly come upon you. The ship is about to be torn apart by the waves. You're throwing stuff overboard, and you can't figure out whose fault it is that you're in this situation. But it's certainly something of a God, divine in some way. At least that's your belief. And you cast lots, and the lot is cast to one guy who's on the ship. Your first question is, what's going on? Is your next question, what do you do? That's not my second question. That may be my first question when I meet you. It's like, hey, it's great to meet you. By the way, what do you do? I'm not standing on a ship about to be torn by, apart by waves. But it's a fascinating second question because it gets to the heart of the issue. The question is, why are you running from God, Jonah? That's the question. What did you do that you would run from God? You can't, Jonah can't sidestep this. He could say, and he's going to answer, he's actually going to sidestep the exact question, but in giving his answer, he still doesn't tell what his occupation is. But it's the occupation that is why Jonah is in the position he's in. Jonah likely stood in disbelief. 
God would not leave him alone. He'd gotten on the ship. He tried to sail to Tarsus. He was trying to get away. It was obvious to the sailors that Jonah's God was upset with Jonah. That was obvious. The casting of lots, Jonah can no longer hide. And this is where we pull a little application for you and I. It's a wonderful thing when you've done something right and someone asks you, hey, by any chance, are you a Christian? I remember years ago, Les, Dr. Lofquist and I were traveling someplace and we were actually overseas and we were in an airport together and there was a, a, a waitress serving us at a little restaurant there in the airport and she came and she was cheerful and bubbly and uh, we were having a great conversation with her and you could tell that there was something different about her from the other waitresses and, and I just struck up a conversation with her and pretty soon Dr. Lofquist says, oh, by the way, do you know Christ as Savior? She goes, well, yes, I do. How'd you know? Isn't it wonderful to be recognized like that? Say, wow, there's, there's something about you that's different. However, have you ever done something wrong and somebody said to you, hey, I thought you were a Christian. How does that feel? That's where Jonah's at right now. And his sin is exposed. Look in verses 9 and 10. He says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. We're not sure exactly all that he told them, but sin is certainly exposed here. But it is fascinating in the way that Jonah writes this. If Jonah is the author of the book of Jonah, it's fascinating how he writes this. It's almost as if he kind of, pulled out the collar a little bit and said, well, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a follower of the Lord, the God, the Creator God who made the heavens, the ocean, and the dry land. Notice Jonah's answer, because this is where you and I fall in a lot of times into the same kind of hypocritical faith as Jonah is in. Was his answer theologically accurate, yes or no? Absolutely is theologically accurate. Is God the God of the land and the sea? See the creator who made all things? Yes, he is. Jonah's answer is theologically correct. Jonah is saying the truth theologically, but it dripped of hypocrisy. It dripped of hypocrisy. He identified God as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, but Jonah's actions showed that he did not truly fear God. That's going to become important later. As we continue in our study tonight, you're going to notice the heart of the pagans and how it shifts. Jonah does not fear, in this moment, he does not fear the Lord. Jonah was not trying to discredit God, while at the same time he was trying to disobey God. So he's saying, yes, I serve the Lord, the God who made heaven and earth, the one who created the seas, he created the dry land, that's the God I serve. Did Jonah answer their question? No. Did he answer theologically correct? Yes, but it dripped with hypocrisy. And the sailors knew it. When they learned that he is fleeing from God, they erupt at him. Why did you do this? 
we could translate the phrase that they are, are using here. They're wondering why. They're exceedingly afraid, verse 10. What is this that you have done? When they learn he's fleeing from God, there's another lesson for us to learn here. What a tragedy it is when pagans have more clarity than prophets. What a tragedy it is when pagans have more clarity than prophets. And when the world exposes the sins of Christians that they had hoped to hide. Beloved, that statement could have been said in our critical thinking series. Isn't it devastating when the world exposes the sins that Christians have sought to hide? That's what's happening right now. The Lord is using pagan people to expose the sinful heart of a rebellious prophet. God is using pagans to expose Jonah's sin. But notice, Jonah stands undeterred. He's still determined. Verse 11 says this, When they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. It's interesting as Jonah's determination continues to be steeled against any sort of repentance. Uh, We don't know. But is this really the only answer that Jonah could have come up with? Think of this. Could Jonah just not have said, you know what, it's my fault. Let's turn back and go to Joppa. I'm going to repent before my great God. Do you think the seas would have calmed? We don't know. That's speculation. We don't know that answer. But that seems a lot more reasonable than throw me overboard. Well, you want the seas to be calmed down? Just throw me into the sea. We begin to really understand the heart of Jonah here. He refuses to pray to God. He and God are not on speaking terms at this point. He refuses to give the full answer to the question of the pagans when the lot has been cast against him. Jonah has made this revelation to the sailors that it is him that is the problem, and the storm gets worse. And their question, what should they do? Even as they're questioning, the the waves are beating harder, the storm is growing in its intensity. What these pagans missed was Jonah's motive. And you and I must be very, very cautious in the Christian life today. What these pagans missed was Jonah's motive. They thought he was running away from God because of something that he had done. Instead, they did not know that he was running away from God because of something he was supposed to do and wasn't. Is there something in your life as a believer that you know you're supposed to do but you're running away from? That's the motive of Jonah. He knows he's supposed to do something and he refuses to do it. He will not do it. And God is beginning to work in his heart and life. We talked about 
the chastening. Stephen, just a few moments ago, talked about the chastening and even the comfort of the chastening. That is what God is doing in the midst of the storm in Jonah's life. He's chastening Jonah. And it's going to get worse. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us the Lord loves those whom He chastens. If you've never seen a believer being chastened by the Lord, it is a devastating and joyful experience all at the same time. As the Lord chastens those whom He loves. As a pastor, it brings tears to my heart, it brings tears to my eyes, and burdens my soul to see believers going through chastening. But I've watched it, and it's good in the end. We know that it is good, but it is difficult. It is challenging, and that's what's going to happen with Jonah. The Lord, it's already happening with Jonah. As the Lord continues to chasten him, seeking gently, as it were, to begin with, There's been no risk, no loss at this point, other than the cargo. But Jonah will not repent. Jonah's solution was stunning even to the pagans. He says, throw me in. You want the storm to stop? Throw me in. That is not a repentant heart. That is not a heart that says, I will serve the Lord now. That is a heart that says, I would rather die than obey. I would rather die, I would rather perish in the depths of the sea than obey. Jonah was so determined not to go to Nineveh that the prophet would rather die than repent. He would rather die than go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh to represent a merciful God. Think of the irony of that. You know the rest of the story, as it were. You know the rest of the narrative. How merciful it was of God to have Jonah swallowed by a fish. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into what that actually was, probably, and the mercy of God that was demonstrated there. What a fantastic demonstration of the mercy of God. And yet, Jonah is refusing it. He refuses. He would rather die than represent a merciful God. And so what does God do? Show Jonah mercy. He's going to show Jonah mercy. In verse 13, you see the, the men, these pagan individuals, these pagan men who are praying out to their pagan deities a few moments before, they're rowing desperately in an attempt to reach land. Because if they can reach land, they can save themselves and Jonah. That's their motivation. That's their drive. And again, Jonah provides us with a clear example of irony. Jonah would not lift a finger to save the lives of the pagan Ninevites. But these idol-worshiping sailors put their lives on the line to save Jonah, rowing as hard as they could, trying to get back to dry lands, while Jonah continued in his unwillingness to help thousands, had endangered, or continuing in his unwillingness to help thousands, had endangered these sailors as well as himself. And you don't see Jonah grabbing one of the oars. In fact, the imagery that is left in the text is Jonah is standing there like this. Throw me overboard. You want the seas to stop? Stop rowing. Throw me over. And that is what happens in verse 14 and following. It says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and Lay not on on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. 
The sailors toss Jonah overboard. But it's interesting in the way that they do it. The sailors cry out to Jonah's God. They cry out to Jonah's God themselves. Jonah won't do it, but the pagan sailors do it. This is an incredibly perceptive prayer as well from pagan people. Think, look through what they say. They're recognizing the Lord, the, the right to rule. O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. The giver of life they have appealed to and said, Lord, you have done what is your will. Don't hold that against us. This is very different than what Pilate says about Jesus. Remember when Pilate washes his hands at the crucifixion of Jesus? I, I have nothing to do with this. He had everything to do with that. That's very different. These men are saying, Lord, we have no other option. We're going to throw him overboard or we all will go overboard. Do not hold his blood against us. That is a perceptive prayer by a group of pagan sailors. The Lord is doing something in their lives, and we're going to highlight it in just a moment. We're going to come back to that. They pick Jonah up and they hurl him into the sea. Did you notice anything missing? Anything? Jonah's repentance. You're about to go in. You put yourself into Jonah's sandals. You're groggy because you just got up a few minutes before. The ship is tossing to and fro. You know that it's your fault. You know that the men on the ship are going to perish unless you do something about it. Instead of repenting, you say, throw me overboard. You're about to stand in the presence of your maker. Do you repent? Jonah didn't. Jonah didn't. That's where Jonah's heart is at. Jonah still does not repent. He did not petition God. He did not ask the Lord if he would be willing to turn the ship around. He did not show any sense of remorse. He had no prayer of confession. Instead, Jonah was resigned to die in his stubborn, defiant state. Have you ever met believers like that? They're ready to die in their stubborn, defiant state. There's a, a bitterness about their words, a cuttingness. This you often see in believers who've been hurt by the church. There's a cuttingness to them. Say, well, if the church is going to act like this, I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with the God whose church this is. What an, incredibly, what an incredible downward spiral for Jonah. Once a well-respected prophet of the highest order. He was the most well-known prophet in a class of prophets, in a good class of prophets. He had served at the highest levels of the northern kingdom of Israel. And now he's willing to end his life rather than to go to the Ninevites. The average Christian may not face such a dramatic decision. But when we walk away from obedience to God, we cease living the kind of life that is worth living. That's where Jonah is at. We will forfeit our full reward. We're reminded in the New Testament and 
As Paul is writing to the Corinthian church that one day your works will be judged, whether they're wood, hay, stubble, or precious stones, gold, and silver. Jonah is forfeiting his entire reward, all because he does not want the Ninevites to experience the mercy of God. Now, again, I remind us, because it's easy at this point to see the, the steely determination of Jonah and say, what is your problem? But I again remind you, as we studied last week, who the Ninevites were. These were a vicious people. These were people, I remind you, as we studied last week, these are people who, if you were one of their captives, would cut off every limb that you had except your right hand, and they would shake your right hand and smile at you while you bled to death. That was the type of people the Assyrians were. And when they were done, when you had expired, they'd cut your head off and leave your dismembered body there. That was the Assyrians. That was the people of Nineveh. That's who Jonah refused to take the mercy of God to. We're going to look into verse 16, but the chapter ends... We're not going to finish out the chapter because the chapter ends with the mercy of God and a fish. We're going to talk about the fish next week, Lord willing. But I want us to spend just a moment in verse 16 because I want us to catch what really happened on the deck of that ship. Verse 16 says this, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and, made, and they offered rather a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There's evidence of a real revival taking place in the middle of the Mediterranean on a storm-tossed ship. Jonah said he feared the Lord, but really he did not. But there were people on that ship who did by the end of the narrative. But Jonah in the water, notice, as Jonah hits the water, notice that the seas go quiet. The sailors are the ones who fear God. They're the ones who had cried out moments before, that the blood of Jonah would not be on them. The, the seas have quieted down. And as the seas have quieted down, there is clarity. There's a fear of God that is now in them. And the sailors offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This phrase that they had offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows could mean that they offered sacrifice and they promised to serve the Lord. Now, it's possible for us because uh, we see this happen in foxhole conversions where someone's in a foxhole and bombs are falling all around them and they say, Lord, if you'll let me live through this moment, I will serve you the rest of my life. And then they don't. But there was a key part to the narrative that you had to pay close attention to, and that is what happened with the seas? They were calm. There were no bombs falling. There was no more threat to the ship. Suddenly, the seas went still. The sailors could have continued on their journey, unimpeded by any danger or threats. The greatest irony of the scene, of all of this coming to unfold, Jonah refused to keep his prophetic vows to worship and serve God. But these converted pagans 
are making vows to worship and serve God. Jonah refused, but the pagans accepted and made the vows. There's great revival on the surface as the prophet is sinking into the depths of the sea. The grace of God was evident even when Jonah was rebellious. I want us to notice the grace of God to the sailors on the deck. The irony is Jonah did not want the pagan Assyrians, the pagan Ninevites, to know the mercy of God. And yet, despite his best efforts, God would use a reluctant prophet to show the mercy of God to the pagan sailors who took Jonah out to the middle of the Mediterranean somewhere. Revival would take place in their lives. There's great revival there. That is one part of the irony. The next part of the grace of God is evident when Jonah was rebellious, God was working out his glory. When Jonah was disobedient, God used his words to reveal, he used Jonah's words to reveal God's glory. You may be a reluctant servant of God, but you can't stop doing what God wants you to do. You can fight it. You can kick against it. You can say, I'm not going to do it. Jonah certainly was. When they asked him what he did, he didn't say, I'm a prophet of the living, true God of Israel, and it's my fault that you're here. He didn't say, I, let me show you the mercy of God by repenting and and God showing his tremendous power, relenting in the storm. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the God who made the land and the sea. Throw me overboard. But God used Jonah's disobedience to reveal his own glory. The grace of God was evident. The grace of God was also evident even when Jonah was, Jonah was rebellious even as Jonah was discarded by the sailors like cheap cargo. We should pick up on the nuance. What were they throwing overboard? Cargo. Guess who they threw overboard like cargo? Jonah. Jonah viewed his own life, his own reputation, and his own purpose as cheap cargo. And he told them, send me overboard. It was the pagans who saw value in Jonah's life. When Jonah was discarded by the sailors like cheap cargo, he was not discarded by God. Because there's something else, and we ended last week in the same place, as the ship set sail out of Joppa, something way down deep was obeying God's voice. That something has been circling the ship, waiting for this moment. Verse 17 says this, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's where we're going to pick it up next week. Lord willing, as we begin to see God's great grace demonstrated to Jonah, who will continue to be rebellious. And I'm sorry, one thing I will say next week is I don't think it would have taken me three days to repent in the belly of a fish. <laughs> uh, but it did Jonah. Uh, we see a lot of this take place uh, where Jonah is going to be a reluctant prophet all the way through the book, but God is gracious and merciful, and that is why we praise our great God. 
let us not be reluctant prophets. But there's a lot of warning signs along the line here. There's a lot of things that we take for granted often. The first is, are you obeying Christ? Are you obeying and doing what Christ wants you to do? Or are you reluctantly doing it? Or are you rebelliously not doing it? Let us be those who are cautious and careful, even to look into the life of Jonah and to say, look at his stages of his deplorable condition increasing. He starts out at a high. He served the Lord. He's been faithful for decades. Serving in the house of Jeroboam the second, serving with distinguish and honor, distinguishment and honor, and then quickly sliding down. Mentioned in 2 Kings as, as one who was extremely valuable and important to the work of God in the northern kingdom. A rebellious kingdom. But now he's developed the habits and the likeness of those that he had served. He's out in the middle of the Mediterranean and he's sinking. And that's where we're going to leave him for tonight. Let us close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jonah is an example to us because like Jonah, we are those who are often rebellious, seeking our own way and our own pleasures. We think of these events and we say, these are, these are outlandish. They, they seem so foreign to our comprehension. And yet I praise you that you had orchestrated a storm to obey you, the wind to obey you, pagan people to obey you. And we see that even in these pagan people and their a response to Jonah that they began to understand who you are. Lord, I praise you that while Jonah was the prophet there, you were the one speaking through him, through the testimony of your mercy and your grace. And even as he would stand with his arms crossed in some sort of pompous refusal to obey, you would communicate a message of grace and mercy to the pagan sailors who were on the ship with Jonah. Lord, I long for one day speaking to those sailors. Praise you for the work that was done in them, the revival that took place there. Praise you for the revival that will take place when Jonah finally and begrudgingly gets all the way to Nineveh. Lord, I pray that we would not be prophets, servants of yours like Jonah was. Teach us from his negative example. Cause us to be found faithful and obedient to you. To be humble hearts, willing to be your vessels for your purpose, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, we love you. We ask your blessing as we depart from here this week. Give us opportunities to be found as obedient servants of yours this week that we would bring glory to your most holy and precious name. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.